0: Morning folks, Um, today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 4. So if you want to open up your Bibles, I'm just going to read it for us before John comes and pray quickly, before John comes to speak to us this morning. So Revelation chapter 4, the throne in heaven, Revelation 4. After this I looked, (coughs) and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And the throne came from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, there was as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty." who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, And by your will, they existed and were created. I'm just going to pray quickly before John comes to speak to us this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to come together as a church family and and open up your word together, Father. I pray you'll just send your spirit now right through the building, Father, to, to bless each room from the smallest ones right up. Just help all the Sunday school teachers now, Father, that the kids will be attentive they'll be they'll be ready to hear your message this morning spoken through those leaders father and i pray you'll just help us now in this room it could be a hectic week father for some of us here so i just pray that you'll settle us just still our minds just bring focus father bring concentration and bring an openness to hear what you want us to hear this morning amen
1: Amen. Yeah, Thanks, Pete, for that this morning. Uh, so today we are in our, we're beginning our new series in Revelation. Uh, and I know from uh, speaking to some of you and, uh, you know, just listening to you, I think that some of you are really looking forward to this series that we're starting today in Revelation. Uh, I think also some of you maybe are a bit daunted by the fact that we're going into Revelation. Uh, so we're all across the board when it comes to the book of Revelation. Some of you are looking forward to the fact that there's going to be beasts and dragons and all sorts of things in here. Some of you, not so much. But that's where we're going, and we'll be here for quite some time. We're going to spend the next few months in this book. Apart from Advent, we'll take a break for Advent, but we're going to be in Revelation right up until probably March of next year. So, sometimes we can be a bit afraid of the book of Revelation. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you, for example, were sitting at home and and thinking of doing your devotional reading and thought to yourself, do you know where I'm going to read today? Revelation 14. When was the last time you did that? Probably a long time since you've done that or maybe never. Why is that? There's a few reasons, I think. There's a few reasons why we're daunted by, afraid of the book of Revelation. Sometimes, one of the reasons is we think it's overly complicated. We think it's overly complicated. All the imagery and the numbers, and we just don't really get it, so we stay away from it. Another reason I think that we're daunted by it, afraid of it, scared of it sometimes, is that we think it is about end times and end times alone, and that scares us and so we stay away from it. Connected to that a little bit is that because we think it's about end times and end times alone, we think to ourselves, well, what has that got to do with me today? How can the book of Revelation encourage me in my Christian walk today where I am because it's all about end times? Well, my hope, those are just a few reasons why I think sometimes we come to this book with a little bit of trepidation and we're a little bit afraid of it. And my hope for the next few months as we cover this book is that we see that we don't need to have any of those concerns when it comes to the book of Revelation. But to get there, what we're going to need to do is do a bit of work. And I was, I was chatting to Pete uh, before today, and he's, he's a great man for the illustration, a great man for the illustration and he gave me this one. Today, it's going to feel a little bit like we're on the outside lane of the motorway, and we're bombing it, right? There's going to be a lot of information, especially in the early part of today's sermon, that is background work, important work, contextual work, because we need to understand that before we even look at the book. We need to understand what it's saying, who it's saying it to you and all that stuff before we even get there. So we're going to be doing a bit of work today. So tune in. And if you're a part of youth, I uh, hope you're taking notes because there will be questions tonight. My good girl. You're on it already. Brilliant. Right. So first thing first, who wrote the book of Revelation? Well, the author describes himself here in chapter four, as we open up, as John. John, the revelation, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. The book is written by John. Most people think this is the apostle John. And he was on exile. He had been exiled. He'd been taken away. He was being persecuted. He'd been taken away to an island called Patmos, which is just off modern day Turkey. He's there on his own Exile away from everyone else. This angel appears to him and gives him the words that he has to write down. So, it's written by John when It's thought it's written around 95 to 96 A.D. And that makes John an old man at this stage. He's an old man. He's probably not not got long to live, and he is visited by this Angel and given the words that he has to write down, right, by John on Patmos around 95 to 96 AD. To whom is it written? This is really, really important. This is this is one of the keys to the Book of Revelation, in my opinion. To whom is it written? It is written to the seven churches that we have in chapters 1 to 4. We've covered those churches before. We've looked at them. We, we, that's, why, that's why today we're starting in chapter 4. We've covered the churches. Uh, the church, let me just run through them quickly. The church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira, the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, and the church in Laodicea. We have covered those before, but that's who this book is written to. And that's important. And you'll see why that's important in a moment. It's important because of this. It's a letter. It's a letter. Just the same way Ephesians is a letter written by Paul to the church, Corinthians is a letter written by Paul to the church, Galatians written by Paul to a group of churches, Revelation is a letter written by John. To the churches. What does that mean? Well, that means it must have some immediate context to it. It must have some immediate context to it for John to write a letter to the churches. They must be able to go, okay, I I understand what you're saying to us, John. In our context, this makes sense to us. It's a letter. And look at what it says here at the beginning of the book, from the outset. This is really important as well, because it just alleviates these fears that we have of revelation. It says this, blessed, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it. There is blessing in the book of Revelation. Who doesn't want blessing? Why would we stay away from this book if there is blessing to be found in it? God has told us there's blessing to be found in the book of Revelation, so let's get into it. There's blessing. So that's the first thing to say, really. This is a letter written by John to a specific context at a specific time, but it's written a certain way. It's written a certain way, and it's written in what we, what we know as apocalyptic writing, right? What does that mean? Apocal- apocalyptic writing, or apocalyptic genre, basically means that, that in the first century there was a lot of this writing about, and it used imagery and symbolism to get across a point. That's what it means. For any of us who have started the Bible studies, uh, the Proverbs Bible studies, for any of the ladies who were at the, the conference last week, you will have heard a lot about genre. Genre of book in the Bible is important. We have things like law, history, letters, all different types of writing in the Bible. And Revelation is a specific type of writing known as apocalyptic prophecy. All right? You with me? Apocalyptic prophecy. What it means is it uses symbols and it uses metaphors to get across a point. All right? That's important. So it's apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Right. Now, we have just a little bit more work to do before we get to the actual text today. And this is really important. So, you have it. It's a book. It's written by John. It's written on Patmos around uh, around 95, 96 AD. It is a particular type of writing. But what has happened in the church over the centuries is that Revelation has been interpreted several different ways, right? There have been traditionally four different ways, four, that's (laughs) four, got you, four, not four, four different ways in which Revelation has been interpreted. In the last 100, 150 years, there has been a fifth, and what I want to do is just give you those four ways, and you'll be able to see them. Whatever church background you've come from, you'll be able to see them, probably, right? So let me go through them. There is the futurist approach to revelation, the futurist, and what this approach means basically is everything from four, everything from today where we are, from chapter four through to the end of revelation, has yet to happen all right, you with me yeah because i 'm going to have to keep on saying this today, Are you with me because I know this is hard work, and I know we need to get we 're get, we're getting there, but Everything, the futurist approach is everything from chapter 4 through to the end of the book has yet to happen, all right? That's the futurist approach. Uh, Then there is, and this is a word, and this might be an important word if you want to take it down for youth, maybe, possibly, I'm only saying, maybe, it might come up tonight, just saying, right? This is the preterist approach, right? The preterist, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T, the preterist approach, and what this, this comes from the, the Latin word preter, which means past. It's the opposite of the futurist approach, right? So what the preterist approach means is this. Everything in the book, apart from the second coming of Christ, has already taken place. You can see the difference. Futurist from chapter 4, everything's yet to take place. Preterist everything apart from the second coming of Christ has already taken place. Right, that's the two. The third, the historicist approach. And basically, the historicist approach to Revelation is this, historicist, historicist, historical, is you look at the book of Revelation, and you can map out historical events that have already happened and are yet to take place. All right, literal historical events. Okay, okay that's a historicist, historicist, I can almost speak, approach. Then fourthly, you have the idealist or spiritual approach. And the idealist approach differs from the three other approaches in that it has a reluctance to to be specific or like, say, this event happened here and this event's going to happen here. It's it's a spiritual approach to the book, and it spiritualizes everything and symbolizes everything that will take place just over the history of, of mankind, basically. Four different approaches. Right? Four different approaches to the book of Revelation. Now, if I had asked you before today what your thoughts were on Revelation, I, I'll, I'm going to take, take a shot at this, and I would say that most of us would have thought that Revelation is about end times. Am I wrong? No? I, I think most of us would have thought Revelation end times. So most of us would have fell, fallen into what view? the futurist, right? So, but over the last few decades, or few few centuries, there's been a new approach taken, and it's called, it's a fifth way, it's called the eclectic approach, the eclectic approach. And what it means is this, basically, instead of falling into one of those categories and just being like, this is what it means, it's definitely all futurist, it's definitely all happened, what the eclectic approach means is that we, we look at it at, from a broad spectrum, and we think, right, okay, taking everything into consideration, there's possibly part of that, right? There's possibly part of that, right? There's possibly, yeah, I can see part of the futurist. I can see part of the preterist. I can see part of all these, and and, and they combine it, and, and that's how we interpret the book of Revelation. Now, I'm just going to give the game away. That's where I fall. That's where I fall. Because And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you for why. It's a letter written to a specific group of people at a specific time for a specific purpose. What was happening in the church uh, at the time was severe persecution. So John writes this letter, and there's symbolism and there's stuff about the Roman Empire and there's symbolism about how the church is being persecuted at the time, and it has to make sense to the church at the time. It has to. So therefore, some of the events of Revelation have already taken place. So that's that's a bit of the preterist view. Some of it has already taken place, but also some of it is yet to be fulfilled some of it yet has to take place. The second coming of Christ has to happen. There are other events that have to happen. And so there's a bit of the futurist view. And it's those two brought together is where I personally would probably land. It has to to make sense to the church then, but it also, there is events that need to take place. And so when I come to the book of Revelation, that's the way that I am reading it. Tim Chester says this in his little book, if you want to, be, if you want to read book, an easy, accessible book for the re, book, or Revelation, it is Revelation for you, Tim Chester. Revelation for you, Tim Chester. Tim Chester says this: John was not a kind of sound evangelical Nostradamus, as in Nostradamus was someone around. I can't remember the exact time, but he was a he was a prophet and, and predicted events that were going to happen. John was not a kind of sound evangelical Nostradamus. We must not suppose that John on Patmos thought he was predicting events in the 16th century Britain or the 21st century Middle East. He he wrote to address the experiences faced by his readers. But like John and generations of Christians before us, we should apply the prophetic critique of imperial and idolatrous power to the particular challenges we face today in our context. So, Revelation made sense to the readers then, it should make sense to us now, and it should make sense to those who follow us way down the line. And so I am hoping, because that's the way we'll come to it, and and especially this passage today, that's the way we'll come to it, that should be a massive encouragement for us to get into this book, to understand this book, and be encouraged by this book. You with me? Yes? Am I clear? And please, I know in this series, there's going to be like, you're going to be sitting there sometimes going, "Ah, what the blazes, John? Uh, Please don't be afraid to ask me questions and I will do my best. If I do not know the answers, I will do my best to get the answers. So that's the context. John writes this letter on Patmos to the church around 95, 96 AD into a specific context, and that specific context was this massive, massive persecution. People were losing their lives because they followed Christ. people were losing their lives because they followed Christ. And let me say this, we know nothing about it. We think we are being persecuted when someone makes fun of us because we follow Jesus. These first century Christians were losing their lives. John the Apostle, Boiled in oil because he would not recant his faith. And I have, I have recounted for you guys over and over again the way the apostles died. Every single one of them killed apart from John. John seemed to just refuse to die. So it's in the, that context that John has given this vision. And look at these beautiful words as, as, as chapter 4 opens up. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Basically, that, 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 just that little vision there, just see what that means. That There's a door, and it is open. It's open. And John is being called up in this voice like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, we need to be careful when we're reading Revelation, when we see something like that, when it says, what must take place after this. It's not necessarily in chronological order. It is just telling us what's going to happen. All right? So we just need to be careful with that. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Folks, we're going to have to use our imaginations here through this series, we are going to have to use our imaginations. And I want us to get this. Behold, a throne. The throne room of heaven is literally being opened up to the Apostle John. He has been given new perspective on, on, on just on everything. And he who sat there, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian around. And so basically those so- stones are Old Testament references from stones that were referenced in the Old Testament. And it's basically just to say the splendor of God. The splendor of God. The scene has changed here. Laodicea, we're, we're told it was, was a poverty-stricken church. John is being given new perspective from the throne room of God. The church may be in trouble in some cases. Satan may be doing his worst. But what John is saying here is that God is ruling and reigning over everything. He is on the throne. He is on the throne. And so we have a change in perspective and a change in location and a change in time. Location. We're taken up to heaven. We are taken up to heaven. Uh, what in, in biblical prophecy and biblical writing, uh, you've, you've maybe heard the phrase the third heaven before. So that is where John is being taken up to, the third heaven. And when, when the Bible talks about the heavens, it talks about three levels of heaven. One is just the basic skies that we see above us where birds fly and stuff happens and all that jazz. Then the, the second one is the outer galaxies and, and stuff, planets and stuff that are out there. And then the third is here, The third is where God dwells. So that is where John is being taken up to. That's where he is. He's getting a glimpse of what is in the heavens. What we see in the opening verses of chapter 4 is the one who truly rules the world. There's a throne in heaven with someone on it. And he rules and he reigns. And that's the big picture of chapter 4 of Revelation. At once I was in the Spirit on a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow. The the rainbow is just simply representing a covenant-keeping God, a covenant-keeping God. We know where the rainbow comes from. God promised and kept His covenant that He would never, ever subdue the world like that again. It's just a reminder of a covenant-keeping God. The throne is surrounded by 24 thrones. on uh, on which sit 24 elders, important, massively important. All this imagery is important. What do the 24 thrones and the 24 elders represent? 12 represent the tribes of Israel, and 12 represent the apostles. But what does that mean? That means that, that all of time is represented around the throne room of God, both old covenant and new covenant. So there was, there was massive worry in the early church, right? And here was the worry in the early church. What happens to those who have passed on already? Right? They were worried. What happens? What, what, you know, they were promised that, that they would reign with Jesus. So what happens to our loved ones who have been been martyred for for Christ, what happens to them? This here, when John gets this vision and writes this vision to the churches, this would have been a massive encouragement for them because they see that all people from all times are ruling and reigning with Christ. Ruling and reigning. We must understand the, the imagery here. Ruling and reigning, sitting on the throne with Jesus. This would have been wonderful news for the early church. As we go through 24 thrones and seated on the 24 thrones were 24 elders clothed in white, basically covered with the righteousness of Christ. Covered with the righteousness of Christ. That is what those white robes are representing. Clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. They are ruling and reigning. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings. What does this mean? Lightning, thunder is synonymous with judgment. Comes from Mount Sinai. What happened with the law when God was giving the law? Lightning, thunder. That's what it means. That's what it's symbolizing. It's coming back to Sinai. Seven spirits of God. Something uh, that really important. Seven will come up over and over again. What, does anybody know what's? If you watch the video that I sent out the other day, and coming up, you will know what is. What is this vision? This this. It doesn't necessarily mean seven. Literally seven. What does it stand for? Perfection. Perfection. The number the number seven in scripture is representative of perfection. So when it says he's seven spirits of God, it is literally just saying the spirit of God is there and he is what? Perfect. He's perfect. Seven spirits, seven horns, seven eyes. Just perfect. Seven horns and seven eyes basically just means he sees everything and he is able to do something about it. That's what that means. He is able to see things, everything, and do something about it. That's what the horns represent, power, strength. And then there's, this, there's there's so many little things here, but they're so significant. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits, perfect. And before the throne, there was was as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. What does that mean? In in Bible writings, the sea was synonymous with just destruction. Uncertainty. Not knowing what was going to take place. So what does this vision of a sea which looked like glass represent? Perfect peace. Perfect peace. If you ever go down to Newcastle and it's it's like a really good day and there's no wind and and, and you look out on the on the sea, what do you say it's like? A sheet of glass. Perfect peace. That's what this is representing. And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures. This is where it all starts to get a bit, you know, what on earth are these living creatures? Well, what commentators believe these four living creatures, uh, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like that of an eagle represent these things, the lion, the noblest of all animals, the ox, the strongest. The man, the wisest, and the eagle, the swiftest. Early writers thought that these uh, animals represented the four gospel writers. However, it is probably more likely that they represent what, what Paul talks about in Romans about the redemption of all of creation. All of creation. When we think of redemption, sometimes I think we can be too narrow-minded when it comes to redemption. We can think of redemption as just humanity. Paul tells us otherwise in, in Romans. Paul tells us that the whole of creation is groaning, awaiting redemption. We will be given a new heaven and a new earth. Everything will be made new. And that's what these animals represent. And each of them, full of eyes, around and within, day and night, never cease to say. And I'm going to pause there. Right. All of that has been a lot of information when it comes to the throne room vision. But it's there for a purpose. And it has a purpose. And it has a purpose for us. And the purposes are these, two: It is to show us that God's on the throne, and we are not. It is to show us that God's on the throne, and we are not. In this world today, we are bombarded with the notion, and it's summed up… I've I've, I've quoted this little uh, poem. I can't… Invictus, I think it's… Invictus is the poem where it says this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is today's world view. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I dictate what happens. I'll make it happen. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do something else. Revelation 4 comes in and says, you are not on the throne. You are not sovereign. Sovereign. God is ruling and reigning, and we need to take our eyes off ourselves and place them on the throne room of God and realize that He is sovereign. He is ruling. He is reigning. We are not. I think most of us was, if we're asked, and I do this sometimes with people, I ask them, "Do you believe that God is sovereign?" Oh. course, of course we believe that God is sovereign. It's easy to say. We wouldn't deny it. But it's the application of that sovereignty is the difficult thing. What happens when illness or sickness or whatever comes into our lives? Is God sovereign then? What happens when we're going through that difficult time, that, that, that that issue in our marriage, that that issue in our singleness, that that whatever it may be, is God sovereign then? Is He still ruling and reigning? Why did the sickness come? Why did the issue come? We would say that, yeah, we believe that we live in a broken world, and and it's because of the result of sin and, and all that. But do we believe that God is sovereign in it? Do we believe that He is, and it's very easy to say for us, you know, God will work all things for the good of those who love Him, but do we actually believe it when it comes to all things? In your depression, in your anxiety, do you believe that God is working for the good of those who love Him? Is He sovereign even in that? Is He sovereign when you are struggling to pay the bills this month? John wants to take us to the throne room, show us that He is on the throne and He is ruling and reigning. Amen? Amen. And that should be the biggest encouragement that we have. That he is not lost control, but he is ruling and reigning. So, all of that imagery, all of that is to show us that God is on the throne. But there's something else that happens in chapter 4 that is actually taking place around the throne. What's that? It's worship. It's worship. And what do they focus in on? This is important, folks. What is the worship of heaven focused on? Look at it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. What's the focus? God He's the focus. And in particular, his holiness. One of these attributes of God. Holiness reminds us of the, of the song in Isaiah 6. A similar song is sang, and the, the emphasis is the same. It is on the same attribute. Holy. The attribute of God that is holy, set apart, not like us, completely other, is mentioned more times in Scripture than any other attribute of God. His holiness. Revelation 15 will find a similar song that is sang. But isn't it interesting… That the worship of heaven will be focused on God and not on us. I'm not here to critique modern worship songs. I'm not. But how many modern worship songs are focused on how I feel about God? And not on God Himself. Our feelings change. Our affections change. God doesn't change. The object of the worship of heaven is the Lord. He is the one to be worshipped. He is the one to be exalted. He is the one here we see the elders falling down before, expressing a, a submission to. God is incomprehensible. He is other. He is completely different. He is holy. The elders fall down before Him They cast their crowns before him. One of of the favorite quotes I heard around the Queen's death was apparently she said this, I don't know why she did it or not, apparently she said throughout her life that she wished that King Jesus would return before her death so that she could lay her crown at his feet. Powerful image. Of what's going on here in Revelation chapter 4, where the elders, representatives of the church from all of history, Old Covenant, New Covenant, are bowing down before the king, casting their crowns at his feet, because what? He is worthy. He's worthy. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Folks, think of the immediate context that this is written into as we finish today. John is on Patmos, exiled, persecuted. The church is being persecuted left and right. People are losing their lives for following Christ, and the refrain of heaven is what? you're worthy. You're worth it. You're worth it. And so folks, no matter what you're going through today, no matter what the crap is in your life right now, let the refrain of our hearts be, you're worth it. You're worth it. You will return and you will rule and you will reign. And no matter what we face, no matter many hardships we face, no matter how what we're feeling, you're worth it. Amen? Amen. 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 He's worth it. King Jesus is worth it. And he's ruling and reigning. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for this picture. And I pray, Holy Spirit, person of the Spirit of God, meet us now. Meet us. Encourage us. There is not one soul in this room that is not struggling with something. Meet us. Lift our eyes to the throne room. Where you rule and you reign. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.